Hi, I'm Joel. And I'm Kishan. And this is Tea for Two. This is our BFF podcast where we talk about anything from science to popular culture, the arts, and life in Singapore. Everyone, it's me, Joel, a playwright and performer. And it's me, Kishan, a science educator. And welcome back to T42, our best friend podcast where we talk about whatever the Fergal. Fergal? Fergal. Oh my god, are we going German now? Fergal, we want. Genau. <laughs> You've run out of all the F words in the English language, is it? No, I still got a lot. But Fergal <laughs> is what? Bird in German. Bird, right? apparently, yes. Yeah, which um, is apt as usual because this episode, as you can probably tell, is going to be quite yes. in the wild. Yes, it's tea for two in, in the, the wild. wild. I don't know if you can hear the jungle sounds around us. Mm. It's, quite, it's quite exotic, isn't it? Quite scary. Yeah, this episode <laughs> is going to be a deep dive on the subject of nature, yes. which is something that the two of us have wanted to do for quite a while. Yeah, now. we'll be talking about it for a bit and the idea is like we're going to invite all of you on this nature walk with us so take this podcast out with you or if you're in a room you know maybe imagine that you're walking through a beautiful rainforest that's lovely but we are not alone Kishan and I this is yet another episode of (gasps) Tea for Two Tea for Two for for Three three. we've got a guest spot open and we've invited one of our good friends from university yes the wildlife is joining us yeah the wildlife is truly (laughs) joining us Mm. Um, this person is a wonderful scientist a writer and a performer and um, most importantly a friend a friend but also a Victorian <laughs> wit and a, quite a huge personality as you will no doubt find oh, out oh yeah you'll soon. definitely find out people <laughs> so without any further ado let's welcome on this walk through nature our good friend David, David Tan. Tan hello it's nice to be here Long time listener, first time caller. I love that. A little yeah, like, so radio, good. Like, radio, like analog radio throwback. So, David, <laughs> now you are now on a PhD program. Yes. At the University of New Mexico. Yes. Okay, I think to give the, our listeners some context, what are your research interests, uh, David? So, people call me the Birdman of No, more specifically, the dead Birdman of Singapore. That's yes. because I am notorious in some circles for working not just on birds, but birds that have died. Yeah, a necromancer of birds. That, as it well, were. I don't animate them. Or <laughs> maybe, maybe I do. Give me time. Uh, <laughs> okay, wait. So, some of you may have seen funding. on Facebook or social media like um, some photos circulating yeah. of like dead birds, basically. Dead birds. And then, like, if you see a dead bird carcass or whatever, yeah. you call this number, I believe. I mean, I'm surprised I never been flagged by Facebook for any kind of disturbing content you know no, because no, no, no. these okay. are all animals that are dead ba- basically like, and then you go around yeah, Singapore David goes around the island well he did before he moved to the, right. the US yeah. going around the island collecting dead birds and, and you know now I think about it I did it for about 6 to 7 years yeah. Yeah. a long you, time you did it for the longest time and you would post pictures of these dead birds that that, that more often than not uh, died because they collided into windows yeah that's right right in Singapore at least they yeah. collided into windows and then you couldn't collect these carcasses but what did you do well I mean the whole them? idea is that you know these birds are dying right let's turn them into something useful let's use them for science so the idea is you know and some of these birds are really really rare as well you know mm. birds that we really hardly see on a regular basis so they've died and there's so much information we can glean from these bodies uh, not just about their evolution but their ecology their you know movement biology uh, I've got a student right now at NUS who is working on the parasites that these birds carry wow. and wow. You know, these are things that we really don't know much about and so I figured uh, let's do something about it so I, I just want to say 
that like I've been I don't know if I ever told you but I've been so inspired by your bird collecting and your archival of the birds of the region through their dead bodies which I think is very poetic yeah it is and I wrote a, a, a scene in a play of mine called No Particular Order which basically follows two ornithologists uh, no two yeah two ornithologists you collecting have to give dead the play. birds and like using it as a way to comment on uh, like sorry where are my royalties ah? sorry you don't own the concept <laughs> it's inspired by oh okay it, not, <laughs> but I just think it's so like profound because like I've also worked with the artist Robert Zhao as you know yes. who is fascinated with nature right and he has a whole fascination a strand of fascination in his work that surrounds birds and the effect of like um urban I guess urban ecology yeah. on, birds. on their because, population yeah right. because like we, we built all these massive skyscrapers with no regard with no for, regard for the for fact this that flying these birds just, already here and like they see these re- correct me if I'm wrong reflective surfaces and they think it's a sky right so they just go straight into it that's and right then, and, and I mean it's not just that it's also that light pollution affects birds so I mean this oh, I'm going to yeah. go into a bit of the science right now but um, migrating birds use a variety of methods to orient themselves mm. right one of the methods is they look at the, where the sun rises and the sun sets that tells them east and west Right, but the other thing that birds use for orientation during migration is the stars. We know this from a really cool set of experiments that were done, a uh, goodness knows when. But I, I'm going to briefly explain the experiment right now. Imagine you have a funnel, right? Um, uh, so, uh, uh, you oh know, my god, I'm just going to stop you. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. Yeah, Kishin, okay. Kishin's fully like WAP now, right what, now. What, what these people did was they put the birds into a bowl. Okay, the bowl has high wait, walls. Wait, they put a what? They put a bird in a bowl. They put a migrating bird in a bowl. Right, and this bowl has high walls. They put paper, uh, filter paper along the sides of the walls, and on the base of the bowl, they put an ink pad. Okay, very simple. So every time the bird hops onto the side of the of the bowl, it will make a footprint. Ah, okay. Right, and then they looked at you know uh, where the directions of these footprints uh, were. So whether or not the birds were biased towards jumping in a particular direction. Then they put this bird into a planetarium and they projected the stars. <gasps> Onto the ceiling. It's a brilliant experiment. And what happened was, when they projected the stars, they all of a sudden realized that the birds were moving in a very particular direction. So they said, this is interesting. Let's rotate the stars. And the birds rotated their direction of jumping to, to meet you know, how the stars were rotated as oh well. Oh my god. Basically, I think the consensus right now is that birds have this innate ability, at least migrating birds have this innate ability to read celestial signals. That is fucking and amazing. And so when, what happens when these birds pass through urban areas? They, mm. you know, they encounter street lights, they mm. encounter lights of buildings, and so oh, naturally... Are they attracted to these things? Uh, some, some birds do, yes. We, we know for some seabirds, for example, if they, the colony is near an, uh, an urban area or a town or a village, they will end up flying into, towards the, the city. And this is not just a, a bird only phenomenon we know this for uh, sea turtles as well right we know we have sea turtles mm. that nest at uh, yeah. East Coast Park mm. and one of the worries is that you know when they see the street lights along East Coast oh, Park no. they will instead of going into the sea when they're freshly hatched they'll go towards the drain yeah, yeah. actually insects also right to some yeah. extent yes so there is actually a very funny photo of one of my professors being held by his legs and his entire body is inside a manhole uh, a drain right because the bunch of turtles went towards the drain and they fell in so he oh was fishing God. them this was from the 90s I think I'm sorry if, there's, if he just saved just a group of sea turtles is going into the manhole. How many that were not safe, right? Just think about the numbers that actually, like, died. Well, fair enough. So now, you know, we, we know that the sea Jeez. turtles do breed on a regular basis at places like East Coast Park. And so now we have a dedicated uh, uh, rehab centre for... Oh, fascinating. And Parks okay. has started one, I think, on Sisters Island where, you know, we'll, we'll recover the eggs, we'll incubate them in captivity right. and then release them into the sea when they are ready to go. Speaking of ready to go, are uh, you guys ready to start on this walk? Oh, I'm excited. Let's go! Yes! So like when I was young, right, I grew up with like 
a very what's the word I'm looking for apathetic relationship to nature mm, right. as many Singaporeans do to yeah. be fair I think a lot of kids as well maybe sure. but many Singaporeans or maybe kids city kids right S- yeah city dwellers yeah that's what we are right uh, you know, yeah. we, we've gone beyond that sort of kampong era so many of our maybe parents I guess less extent our parents mm. but more our grandparents would have grown up much more closer in touch to with nature it, right? yeah. yeah definitely so, right. city folk we are I could never be asked right to go on it's like my parents we go on like trips, family trips to Australia or whatever, and they take yeah. long rides out to see, like, natural rock formations or whatever, and I was just like, fuck this, it's so boring, right? <laughs> and then, like, in Singapore, the last thing I would ever want to do is, like, go and walk to, like, fucking MacRitchie or whatever, or do any of these things that yeah. involve being surrounded by, like, humidity in and fact, trees darling, and insects. you told me that if, before you went to London, you would never... If you if you told your pre-London self that you were going to do this, you would, you would just laugh. Yeah, so nowadays I go for, I, I go for long nature walks, right? And I enjoy being in nature. And it's a very specific having specific to having moved away from here. And when I was in the UK, like a big part of my homesickness was feeling this deep nostalgia for the natural landscape of of this place. Tropical mm. weather, tropical storms. Um, oh, yeah. Tropical plants, a good tropical storm. Uh, you know, and now and now, like in a kind, like in a weird way, right? Like I really enjoy being out in the sun, almost. <laughs> really? It's bizarre. I can, like, well, I mean, yeah. you know, living in the desert, right? Albuquerque, New Mexico is mm. mostly desert, and um, you know, you really miss the tropical thunderstorm to the yeah. point where you know, when it rains, you go like this on here. Oh my god, we all thought that in London. Yeah, Maybe not. Oh my when god, when it was like, a heavy rain, I'm like. I know. Yeah, I, they were. Oh, 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 oh my god! Let yeah. me tell you how many times I've opened my umbrella in the year I was there. A grand total of one. Really? Yeah. And it wasn't because of the rain. It was because of the wind. <laughs> so I'm very cold. Oh, crack, crack, crack. Right, because crack. you know, you, 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 you grow up seeing the, you know, the, the, the power of the tropical downpour. Nothing. Then you go elsewhere, the temperate parts of the world. Yeah, it's and they're nothing. like, oh, this is rain. Uh, this yeah, is not sure. rain. This is spittle. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So I understand this yearning. Yeah, no, it's like, and then you, I realized that when you grow up in the tropics, right, it. I mean, this is going to sound a bit corny, but it kind of really grafts itself onto oh, yeah. your soul That's, that's mold, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, it's, but it's true, right? Like, I write, yeah. So, like, moving to the UK, I found myself writing a lot about, um, like, tropical, the tropical climate, the heat of it, the mugginess of it, the density of the air, mm. the, the haunted forests and, like, the, the trees. The trees. You wrote a lot about the trees. The trees uh, and the mangroves. Yeah. And, like, it's, like, I don't know why I can't, like, separate myself from it emotionally. Uh, and now that I'm back, right, all I do is, like, go out in into nature and I feel like it's very... I mean, to be fair, something I learned, something I learned in the UK, too, because they have... In, in London, which is such a, you know... It's such, a, it's such an urban space, right? It's also an urban space that seems to be built into... Yes. Or amongst for- very ancient right. forests. So you go to Richmond yeah. Park, you go yeah. to um, yeah, I live, near, I live very near Hampstead Heath, so right. we would take long walks in the Heath in the summer and, you know. Do you know, I was very fascinated with the kids there. Like, in primary school, they were able to name all the trees mm. in their neighbourhood. They would point out and say, oh, that's a this tree and yeah, that's yeah, a that yeah, tree. Yeah. And, I, and I compare it to our primary school education and our kids only know, like, um, high, level, high level math. Yeah. And like, they, oh. they don't know, like, the, the nature around it. I'm thinking, like, these kids are actually forming relationships with their environment. Yeah, that's so important because then you care for it. Our our education system does not uh, emphasize enough about natural heritage. We talk a lot about you know built heritage and you know uh, social history, maybe a bit of economic history, but natural history has been very much left to the side uh, for a lot of formal education. Uh, And in the UK, in fact, they also recognize this. Right, and uh, from what I hear, there is a proposal now to add a natural history GCSE. 
uh, to the uh, UK uh, exam. Natural system. history different than biology, for example. Yes. Yeah, obviously, right? Natural history, right? Yeah. So it not just you no know, focuses on say uh, you know the, the the biology of nature, but also looking at you know how organisms live, ecosystems that, mm. that exist in the UK, for example. Um, and and also to be fair, right? The UK has you know they have that cultural capital to be able to to talk about nature mm. right you you ask any kid in singapore right you stop any kid on the on the street and you know just just make sure you're not dikosh um <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> right but if you stop a kid on the street Crazy. and assuming the parents consent <laughs> If uh, assuming the parents can say, and you ask them, look, you know, name five animals. They're going to be naming lions and tiger. Mm. Well, li- tigers slightly better, but lions and uh, rhinoceroses, and these all animals that live in, say, the African Serengeti. Yeah, yeah elephants. Um, right. You know, How yeah. many kids know that you know you can find tigers in Malaysia? You mm. can find uh, orangutans in Malaysia. You or know, in orangut- fact, that we drove tigers to extinction. Right. If you ask a kid, yeah. you know, yeah. okay, where do, where do, where can you find orangutans? Oh, the zoo law. Mm. No, <laughs> no, that is absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I from, from the bird perspective as well kids are more familiar with toucans than they are with hornbills despite the fact that there are literally hornbills flying around singapore uh, everywhere are they really? i don't know they, they're you know if you sh- you would you would have heard them at pulau bin i can guarantee you would have uh, heard them oh there. there's God. about 60 birds there there's so many of them in pasiris so where we are right now all oh, right near sungai api api near sungai api api i was there a couple days ago and i could hear the, i didn't see a single one but you know they're usually high up but they're mm. big birds and they make so much noise and you know so so hornbills are are you know native to our region and kids are more familiar with toucans which are not Found in the old world. Yeah, found because the of the cereal. Well, that and then you know you you ask <laughs> like kids about loop, say <laughs> if you ask them to to identify a sunbird, they say oh it's a, it's a hummingbird. The hummingbirds are only found in the new world as well. Sunbirds are the yellow ones, right? Sunbirds are the, the, the curved bill, the curved beaks, and they go after flowers, right. drink nectar, uh-huh. and they, they do superficially look like sun uh, like hummingbirds. But you know the fact that we are the, the the students in Singapore know more about hummingbirds than they do about sunbirds. I think represents a huge gap. In yeah, what we're yeah. teaching the kids, right? Our 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 nature awareness is very um, very westernized. Mm. It's, yes, it's very, I, I very agree. Co- it's a colonial vestige. We, almost. In fact, a lot of yeah, absolutely, a, a lot of our knowledge about nature does not come from our education system, as you say. It comes from cartoons. Mm. You know, our, re- our, our recognition right. of yeah, like where I dozen at the zoo. Everybody, oh, I mean, everybody uh, runs. So I say that again for the for the for the where audience. I dozen at the zoo. So Kishan, uh, often. Volunteers as a docent at the Mandai Zoo, and by docent we mean he dresses up as animals and then walks around the enclosure. No, I do not. I'm at the fragile forest. You can find me Saturdays to Sundays. God, no, no, no. The no. animals are very sensitive. Huh? I cannot say nasty things about yeah, them. Little they cry. Oh my God, the fragile forest is just Later like they cancel you. Later they cancel me. I, I can't. I can't. When you, David. The, when the children enter the fragile forest, the first things they run to is the ringtail lemur, and they immediately say, "Ah." Uh, King Julian, I believe, from oh, Madagascar. From Madagascar. Go, oh, King Julian, King Julian. I go, no, ringtail lima. <laughs> he such does a, not want to move it, move it. Yeah, such a exactly. such purist, the two of you. No, but this is the problem, right? They recognize these very, um, blo- like, the Hollywood animals. Let's just yeah. call them that. You know, like, very Hollywood, very picture animals. Yeah. And they go like, oh, that's interesting. You know, yeah. Living away made me feel distant from home and everything right but then i realized that talking being not being able to talk about the natural world where i came from felt like a big gap in my knowledge and my experience of the world in this way like i could talk about oaks and cedars and and ashes and that i have built in my mind because of the english language is the language i've grown up with i can name like 
natural formations and natural properties that aren't native to Whereas where what I'm is from. A, what is a Jalutong? What is a Maranti? Correct. Right? Right? The what houses, is a Pulai? They're the houses yeah. in the NUS. La. <laughs> no, man. The university no. town. Well, from my perspective, you ex- I experienced something similar as well. But, you know, because I... Um, what happens as a bird watcher, right? When you travel to a different country... Mm not only do you feel like you're in a different place but the, the entire place sounds different right mm. you know as, as a bird watcher you learn how to identify sounds you learn that okay that, that bird you know that, that sound is a coel can right? I just pause here for a moment to say that David once uh, said something really funny about how like he, there was a movie trailer or whatever you were making a comment about a movie and you were like everything about uh, this, this was crazy Star Wars? Rich Asian. crazy rich Asian, crazy yes. rich Asian. So the dumpling scene right the, yeah. the scene where they're making dumplings now you could hear tits in the background <laughs> and tits are not found in Singapore so how they are a very earth? British bird right oh tits? my yeah. god they're, they're I great love tits. it yeah. right? so, you, know, you know what this is this is an added layer of experience or sensory yeah. experience that you have that a lot of us don't you well know? I call this I mean I, I, I've, I've mentioned this in other media platforms but this is like a superpower is that you know you, you're able to <laughs> To unlock a, a whole layer of meaning about the world that most people don't really understand. No, so this is the thing, right? So, you know, you grew up in Singapore, you you listen to the bird sounds mm. here and you, you, you're able to put a name to every yeah. single sound. When you go, you know, when I went to the US and then, you know, you you, you walk around in the outside spaces, every sound is alien. Mm. And I'm not talking about, the, you know, the American the American accent, which is truly alien, <laughs> yeah. right? But just the... the Shrill and alien. <laughs> the ambient noise you hear mm. does not sound the same. And, mm. you know, it's that very disorienting period where I cannot put a name to that sound mm. yeah right and it, it, it really throws you off until it, you went to learn it and even then I'm still struggling mm. right learning sounds is, is wow. to me I mean some, for some people it's natural you know but for mm. me it, it, it takes many many it took me many years to master even a fraction of the bird calls from Singapore mm. and and so you know when you go somewhere new and, and you hear the sounds and you don't have someone there to interpret it for you it is extremely mind-boggling you go yeah, I'm sure. oh that's a huh the huh I mean there are some Be- birds for example that kind of sound similar wherever in the world you are so yeah. woodpeckers for example they have this loud shrill repetitive call if you hear you know if you hear woodpecker in America and you hear woodpecker in South America it, it'll sound kind of sort of similar to woodpeckers do you know do you have a favourite but sound the, the, the my favourite really bird like. sound is the one that everyone hates Thank you. this is the Asian it's the Asian koala right? that so calls, Asian... calls us to, to morning every, right. every day yeah. <laughs> oh I don't I don't like the bird I love okay, it this is because I'm on the second floor and every fucking 6am on a Saturday it goes crazy can I just say like this I was the sound I, one of the sounds I missed the most when I no, moved no I get it yeah. I get it because it, 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 it attaches itself to this idea of what Singapore is mm. so I get it but no, when you have it like twenty six It's such a ubiquitous yeah. sound, and it's one of those things where you know you you it it, it lodges itself somewhere in your brain, mm. even though you don't really know what it is, and most people have no idea what what, yeah. what this sound is coming from. It's just it's, it's that six a.m. noisy yeah. bird, right? Or that six a.m. noisy sound for all you know the it could be a frog, but right? So the I, I only learned this because uh, I wrote a play called Mosaic where I wanted very much to use this sound to indicate that morning, morning. was coming because these people have been at the playground from you know the night before. And then I just like so I just googled noisy bird noisy morning bird Singapore and this came up because it's so ubiquitous. And that's how you found out it's called the Asian coil. The Asian coil. And yeah. I mean you know so so it's one of those things where you know we 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 associate memories and we associate fondness mm. with the soundscapes we grew up with, mm. and so you know yeah this is this is my experience with living abroad mm. right where. I'm forced to learn a completely alien soundscape and it's it's like being asked to learn a different language altogether. Have there been moments when like say a migratory bird from this part of the world ends up there and then you hear and you go like oh my god. Migratory birds tend not to call. 
because they're not breathing. I did not know that. I mean, they, they wow. make they, they, they do call, but they don't sing. So they they're oh. not because singing is mostly during attracting, the breathing, right? Yeah, for attracting mates. You're right. So um, so like all migrants, they are a little like tongue tied. They're a bit quieter, <laughs> but they do call. So knowing their calls is pretty important. And you know, I mean, this is the thing about about you know looking at migrating birds. You only see them for half a, uh, less than half a year, and so it's like, oh my god, do I have to memorize all this stuff? Actually, but you know, you get used to it. Actually, how how much of Singapore is a port of call for migrant birds? Is it is it a lot? Half of our birds are like, migratory. Like, I, we went we went to Ubin right oh, yeah, that's was like an important bird place yeah important bird called? like there was this Katip something I was actually just there earlier today uh, so Katip Bongsu is a mangrove swamp that's in the Yishun area um, it has I think long been used as a military area but um, it, it's it's quite an important place because it's mangroves it's mudflats mm. uh, and mangroves are unfortunately you know not exactly as abundant as they used to be in Singapore mm. yeah that's true uh, Pasir Ris Park is one of those rare examples where the mangrove has been fairly well preserved right mm. but you know uh, yeah I think we've so these lost are important 90% for... of our mangroves uh, in Singapore already so these are important places for our migratory birds yeah and, and resident birds as well in fact Katip Bongsu has a rather interesting history it used to be one of the largest colonies of black crowned night herons in Singapore uh, but unfortunately well, it's, it's, it's a heron it's a, it's a bird that lives near water <laughs> oh, heron uh, night there. heron means it goes out at night right? okay. but uh, <laughs> long story short but you know so basically uh, I think some people found out that these herons can potentially harbour Nipah virus so at one point I think there was an, uh, an attempt to eradicate the colony there oh gosh so you know, this is where we have we come into conflict with 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 nature. Yeah. So you know, and this is this is also going to be a a byproduct of you know us getting closer to nature and nature coming back. Like because of all the regreening that's happening in our neighborhoods, we are coming closer and closer into contact with like animals, lah. So you're sure. gonna, like even like just down the road from where I live, right? There's a whole stretch that's filled with chickens. Yeah, and like and, potentially jungle fowl. And, and we right? were talking about it like in Tanjung Paga. There's suddenly like two beautiful chickens like beautifully feathered iridescent feathers yeah. just in Tanjong Paka just walking I go like how the fuck did they get here and they're like, someone let go la. and they're beautiful but also residents have been complaining and then of course there's the otters and then like I think monkeys in some Wild parts balls, sure. especially balls, as well balls as well balls, like, there's, yeah. I, I have this really funny video of like it's like some like transport hub in Jurong right where one night suddenly like something like 30 plus balls just like casually strolling through and people were just like what the fuck <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's I mean, called a staff room of wild boars are you kidding no because they're boring sorry oh <laughs> my god i'm sorry i i had to get it out of my system no so i mean you're right you're absolutely right so uh the the way in which we i mean kudos to the government much as i hate complimenting the government but you know we we have done a reasonable job sort of uh, with with greening, mm. right? Our streetscaping could be better, but you know, for what it's worth, it's been it's been fairly successful. Uh, places like Pasiris Park, places mm. like Bishan Park, right, yeah. where nature has in it truly come back to areas that were formerly uh, degraded. Even Pulau Ubin, and people go to Pulau Ubin today, they think, oh, Pulau Ubin is such a natural place. It, you know, it's it's always been like this. That's not true. In the 1970s to the 1990s, Pulau Ubin was a mining town. The place was strip mined. That's why when you cycle around and see all oh, these quarries, right? And people don't really, they think, oh, quarries, green water, very beautiful, it's very nice, it must be natural. But all of those formations were created by mining activities, mm. right? And so Pulau Ubin at one point was basically deforested. And so what you're seeing now is regeneration. And this regeneration has only happened over the last three decades. And I believe... Uh, like I was telling Joel about this like in the early 
I know in the early parts they were actually, uh, Pulau Ubin was actually slated for redevelopment and then they found out that Chik Jawa was filled with like so many ha- different sorts of habitats like I think seven habitats in one area or something like that and then a petition went up to the government to say hey, uh, can we not redevelop this place because this place is teeming with important wildlife and then the government said, okay, fine, or something like that. The Chick Java story is an important milestone in our history as well in, in that, you know, it is one of those extremely rare occasions where the government said, oh, yeah, maybe nature mm. might be important now. Mm. <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, don't, don't develop. I mean, to be, to be fair, if you look at the master plan, up, I, I think up until very recently, Pulaubin, uh, Chick Java was still listed as a to-be-developed place. Right. If they so like what I read was if they decide eventually to redevelop Pulau Ubin, then Chek Jawa will also gonna right. Yeah. Right. So I think for now the government has made a a sort of a, a moratorium. Uh, yeah, yeah. They they said you know okay we'll keep Pulau Ubin as natural as possible, and this whole idea of natural is, is in itself a construct, right? Mm. How what defines natural? Uh, is is Pulau Ubin even natural given that you know its its history has been one associated with with extractive industries with mining. Mm. Um, and also, you know, not just the, the nature side, but what about the human element, the kampong dwellers there? These are people who are growing old. Yes, the right? families who are still there. Should we bring electricity to Pulau Ubin, for example? Pulau mm. Ubin doesn't have, uh, isn't gridded up. They yeah. actually have a mini grid that's run off, I think, solar power and mm. some diesel. Uh, should we bring street lights into Pulau Ubin as well? How is that How is that going to affect? But you know, I think the families are very happy to be off the grid. I think that's the point, right? If not, they would have right. moved to mainland. But also what happens ago. when these families start to die out as well, right? Sure. They're, they're not exactly young. Sure, and yeah. moving forward 50 years into the future, what are we, how are we going to sustain Pulau Ubin? Into the, so this is, these are all questions that, you know, uh, to be fair, people are thinking about. It's, it's not something that, you know, ah, we'll, we'll kick it down the road and, and decide on this later. Mm. But um, these are, you know, it, it should affect how we conceive of nature and how we interact with natural spaces as well. So like the SDB slogan from like long time ago was uh, Garden City, right, for Singapore. Correct or not? Yes. Mm, so yeah. I think this was, oh gosh, from the, like, before the 90s. I don't know whether I was child. La. Yeah, but mm. also like, it ties back to very early Lee Kuan Yew days, right? Yes, when yes, he yes, wanted, yes, yes. he described the city as a garden city. Correct. Yeah. And now I, I think it's moved for, to a, uh, a city in a garden and then a city in nature. That's the current one, a city in That's nature. That's the current branding of, yeah. of, of Singapore's sort of greening efforts. Which I sense. find very interesting because I think it is a bit false to say we're a city in nature because the nature that we have created is very false. Mm. Because it's still a landscape. Call it what you want. I know we were talking about this just now and a garden is a very landscaped place. So I agree. So that's why I think a, a city in a garden feels more true than a city in nature. I think it is lying to people. <laughs> I'm going to disagree with you on this front because yeah, to be it. fair, what nature is truly unmanaged? Mm. Every patch of nature on earth, mm. to some extent at least, right? There's some human hand in it. Whether mm. or not it's advertent or inadvertent, you know, direct or indirect, even the most remote rainforests will be affected by climate change, by the human hand. Mm. So you think it this will... is a nod in the right direction? Well, I, I think so. I think it recognises the fact that we do have native biodiversity here. I actually think city in nature cites the ambition more than anything. It's I think it's important to drop the garden thing, right? It's to say yeah. like we no longer okay. want to think of like, ourselves in this curated landscape but like let's think about how we as a city are embedded within nature whatever nature is right? what the environmental and- community were actually <laughs> proposing was a city in the jungle because mm. that really captures where we are ah. we are a tropical rainforest at heart in fact our heart our literal centroid of singapore is a tropical rainforest mm. like richie and pierce and mandai right and um 
clearly this was a, no, a compromise. I can tell why already because like jungle, right? In the English language and the way it would sit, backward, it uh. sounds backward. It sounds primal. Primal. Correct. It sounds very ooga booga, you know. Yeah. yeah but you see, but that's a colonial that construct. Yeah. Colonial construct. Right? Yeah. But my worry with this is that then for our kids who are now hearing this slogan like a city in nature then they have this idea of oh this is what nature is and Singapore is still extremely manicured you know I take your point that no, but nature is not un- uh, no, very little of nature is not untouched by I man I mean you know? I think you're t- both of you are talking about the same issue mm. it's that up until now it's been very heavily focused on you know strong top down management uh, and you know if the circuit breaker has shown us anything mm. right all these you know uh, uh, gr- uh, grassy verges growing wild mm. right all these oh, uh, beautiful, formally the you know heavily pruned and heavily manicured the bush uh, has grown wild <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. the bush has I mean you know wild. and we need to bring a bazillion in to manage all this yeah <laughs> No, uh, but but okay. Um, there are two sides to this this part because this is personal experience. I went to Pasir Park last week just for fun, mm. um, and I was wearing shorts because you know tropical, mm. warm. I don't want to wear. Long. Usually, I when I go out, but watching, I wear long pants, and I'll explain why in a minute. I walked through this grassy area to look for owls, and then when I came <laughs> back, I got I was bitten all over the place by chiggers. These are these tiny ass mites mm-hmm. that cause these red welts to form. So that is one of the downsides of mm. this. Uh, and you know, okay, when, when we look at this manicuring, we have to look at it also in the context of Singapore's environmental history, mm. right? Uh, I think many of the older people, uh, we are not older, we are very young. No, huh? we are still young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Older, older, older people will remember how, you know, lalang fields would catch fire. Uh, lalang fields are very prone to fire, which is why we planted a lot of these, um, uh, 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 what, what trees? Uh, kaya trees, African mahogany trees. I think because they are resistant to fire oh. right and so we imported a whole bunch of, of, of non-native non-native trees this, yeah. to plant all over these lalang areas lalang prone areas to, to prevent this to fires. contain fires from spreading mm. right so so wow, you know, that's a hell lot of planning or, I mean give it heads off uh, to whoever that did and, this and to mm. be fair you know historically Singapore's way of managing nature has been a lot more I wouldn't say corrosive, but a lot more heavy-handed. Uh, in the 80s, there was a period of time, you know, we, we're all familiar with uh, bird's nest fern, right? They grow in trees, mm, yeah. very attractive. At, in the 80s, there was a mania against bird's nest fern. Oh. The, uh, then, I think, primary production department, which became N Parks, they got it into their heads that bird's nest ferns would cause trees to fall down. Because you know? of the weight? Yeah, very heavy. Uh, you see all the branches? That's uh, ridiculous. That makes no sense. Biologically, in hindsight, yeah. it makes no sense. But yeah. at the time, it was like, oh my god, yeah. You know what? If these trees fall down on people, I kill people. It's terrible. We may have so to. So what did they do? They they, they took tore it all down the bird's nest ferns oh from the trees, right? Uh, and all the orchids, all these epiphytes, all these mm. plants that grow in the trees. They're like, you know, we have to we have to clean the trees, right? Singapore is a clean city, yeah. It's yeah, clean yeah, yeah. and green. Have to remove all these disgusting, dirty uh, contaminants. That I believe that the was trees. the actual email. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, if you look back in the Straits Times in the forum pages, there were some very interesting. Exchanges no doubt. about about this policy. Some like Margaret or Karen, <laughs> yeah. uh, and to the point where today to remedy this, uh, N Parks is cable tying orchids back to our trees. I'm oh not kidding, my God. right? Because these orchids this can't is really funny. A little bit. I mean, like I'm I'm glad that they've come around to this and they understand, you know. It, yeah, but, but, but it's really funny. It's bureaucracy, a bit. right? In the highest order. There's, yeah. there's nothing says bureaucracy like cable tying something. Yeah, you know? it's like. <laughs> Uh, I think better put back. Yeah, <laughs> I think better put back. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> like, mm, no, quite yeah. nice. Huh? Yeah. No, but so, I mean, you know, much as I, I take your point that, yes, you know, uh, it, 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 city in nature does, you know, neglect what what has come before. I think we also have to recognise that a lot has changed in the last, yeah. you know, decade, even the last sure. two decades. I, I actually really like that city in nature. I mean, like, 
it, I mean, I have some other thoughts about it, but like primarily, I feel like it's a bit more honest and that it acknowledges some of the tensions that exist, right? Where it's it's this it's like gardens suggest like oh okay, we're only ever gonna have this kind of really manicured kind right. of state ordained kind of nature, but like now we're acknowledging that if we're talking about a city in nature, there are all these flashpoints and exactly. all these like negotiations that we I mean, make. the thing about garden is that it connotes this idea that ah that branch is our place, cut this, cut, get rid of it, you know. So if if there's something that offends my eye, mm. I will have it gotten rid of yes right. because that is the fundamental because that's what a garden, a garden is, right, right? Yeah. yeah which is you know what you see when you listen to news stories about people living at Bukitima mm. in very very posh sounding um, uh, condominiums they always have some reference to nature in mm. it Casa Verde mm. you know uh, Tima Green mm. Spring Vale you know, all these things and then when, when they move in you know, and so much as a monkey shows up in the backyard, they're yeah, like, "Excuse me, please kill the monkey!" Yeah, you know, the it's monkey like, cannot. Is, like, I don't want the nature. The monkey backyard. is making eyes at my jackfruit tree, and like, it, yeah, it's a monkey. Of course, it's going to be attracted to your fruit tree. Yeah. So this is what I was gonna say, right? That actually, it. I mean, it sounds part and parcel of like these greenwashing efforts of the government, right? Mm. Where it's like, oh, okay, yeah, we need to create this green veneer. But we all know that there is a kind of like queasy, like it's not... The comp- tension? Yeah, like, it's like if you think about how like even like the, the story of Gardens by the Bay, for example, is that they tore down actual yeah. um, like forest. This, this, oh, okay, Gardens by the Bay is an interesting si- situation because that entire piece of land is not in its sense, in any sense natural. It's it reclaimed, reclaimed land, right, yeah. Right, so it was sea, then it became sand, mm. and then things grew on it. Mm. And then when the government said, "Okay, now we, it, it, you know, the the soil has stabilized. Let's do with it what we wanted, wanted to do in the first place." Yeah, which exactly. Is build a garden, which is build a garden. Yeah. right? And so yes, there were wetlands that naturally formed there. There was a bit of secondary forest that yeah. naturally formed there. But and it was reclaimed to begin with, right? right yeah. So so there are two sides to this, right? And, and, and you know, the fine people on both sides, um, <laughs> very fine people. But no, in a in a sense that you know, okay, um, the government does have a. Point in that this is not even a natural space to begin with. Is this is, I mean, it's not entirely te- terra nullius, but mm. you know, it is mm. that this nature forms spontaneously, and we, you know, and and of course the other side is that yes, nature forms spontaneously and has recolonized. So how can we develop the gardens by the bay in such a way that it doesn't wipe out what what gains we have made in yeah. this area? Uh, but this is actually very interesting. So. Uh, as a as a state, I think we rather we have a rather major aversion to spontaneous nature. Oh, for sure. Right. The whole spontaneous you know, anything. Now yeah. we're starting to cut yeah, down absolutely. all these uh, grass verges that have grown feral over the over, over, over the over, CB, yeah. yeah over the you know circuit breaker period, and and this is part of our you know the idea of the managed uh, nation, right? Mm. Um, and so so you know we see places like Bidadari, places like Tengah Forest. These were all former kampongs, former cemeteries, uh, places that have seen prior land use, mm. you know, before going feral. Uh, and now that the place has, you know, gone a little bit wild, and then now the government says, okay, we're going to redevelop this area, and it, it does generate some tension. So that there is a balance to be struck, and I think a city in nature does perfectly capture this. Mm. There is a city, and then there is also nature, and there needs to and be some there, kind of... And there are flashpoints. Right. So the flashpoint I wanted to talk about was the Cross Island Line. It's a new MRT line that they wanted to build, and uh, uh, the, the original one of it, correct me if I'm wrong, cuts through the, the, the forest, and then they said, okay, an alternative would be to go around the forest, but this would cause... Uh, this would uh, bring the cost up significantly and it would cause a lot of inconvenience to the people living in the in the residential area. I have area. so many things to say about this. Okay, Great. now, uh, <laughs> 
I say this also partly because in the early days and to some extent now as well, I was involved in the act, you know the advocacy movement to mm, yeah. to to push for the cross island line to be uh, diverted around the nature reserve. Now, what happened was this 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 issue first came up when uh, goodness heavens, twenty sixteen or was it twenty yeah twenty sixteen I yeah. believe um, when the government put out the land transport master plan. Right, in which they said, okay, this is our vision for the next you know, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things we're going to do is we're going to build a new MRT line that's going to go from Jurong to Tampines. Hooray, you know, now that... You know, because and Just this, what we need. This, no, 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 this was a time when, you know, MRTs were breaking down. Yeah. Right? Yeah. People were very, very anxious and it about... And uh, it was supposed to alleviate Take the east-west east line. West, yeah. Yeah. Right, which we now have the downtown line to alleviate. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> it helps right. alleviate as well. But so, so what happened was, you know, basically what happened, some, some engineer at LTA, you know, saw, okay, we need to get from... The east, the west side to the east side, right? Oh, you see these two points, draw a straight line, and that happens to pass through the nature reserve. But but bearing in mind that you know this was a, a preliminary plan, it wasn't a fully fleshed out plan. So so you know when we saw this straight line passing through the nature reserve, we were, you know, many of us in the nature community, we were obviously appalled. We're mm. like, you know, hey, this is a nature reserve. How how dare you do this to the nature? The reserve? term is primary forest, right? Well, okay, so primary forest is a very technical term. It means forest that is primeval, has never been cut down. Right now, and this is another thing, right? We talk about how Pulau Ubin, you know, is not actually in its original natural state. The nature reserve in Singapore, the central nature reserve, is also not in this natural state. Oh. Um, during the you know the the early nineteenth century and the you know even the early uh, up to the early twentieth century, this many parts of the central nature reserve were plantations. They were pineapple oh, plantations, yeah, rubber yeah, yeah. plantations, pineapple. yeah, right, wow. um, rubber, rubber plantations primarily. Mm. So if you go to Macritchie right now, a lot of the trees you see along the trail mm-hmm. are rubber trees. Okay, that makes sense. Many of the trails you see are old kampong trails as mm. well, right? So so much as the forest has you know regrown back over the last hundred. 50 years, right? There are patches of primary forest and these are usually places that are a bit higher up so they're a bit harder to reach and harder to cut down. Mm. Yeah. But most of the area in the in the lower-lying regions, these would actually have been uh, regrown over the last century and a half. Mm. Uh, it's just that it's one of the oldest forests that we have in Singapore, right? And so, so and of, of course, it's been designated a nature reserve. And so, what, what you know, we realised was, that, you know, we need to have a dialogue with the government about this and we need to, we need to, to, to put forward a case for the Cross Island Line to not ha- impact the nature reserve. Right. So this, this has been a long, long process, give and take. Uh, obviously, I'm not happy with the outcome, but the government said, you know, we're going to put, we're going to put the line through the nature, underneath the nature reserve anyway. Um, but their decision was that they're going to dig it deep and okay I, I also don't buy it and they say that the vibrational forces will not disrupt the animals as much but I'm thinking uh, how you know you know because right. no, and, and, <laughs> you that, don't know right you what, don't know what's going to disturb an animal test, what, what right. test did you actually do yeah. so I, I, I don't know I didn't, I didn't actually read I mean, the paper or the evidence I mean la. the engineers have done some homework on this they have said oh you know our simulation and our study have shown that if it's so deep uh, it will not affect the surface mm. but the problem is you know this is a problem of hubris right uh, we know many engineers, and we know the engineers are also <laughs> susceptible to the, to the to the problem of self confidence and believing the data too much. As a, as a scientist, as someone who you know has to confront my data being problematic every single day, I you know this is one thing where that rubs me the wrong way, right? Is that you cannot be certain that this won't have an impact on the nature reserve. Exactly. But more importantly, the one thing that worries me a lot is that this was going this is going to set a precedent. Since the Central Nature Reserve was set up until now, we have, you know, made sure all our infrastructural projects have avoided it. Right, mm-hmm. the PIE, the CTE, the, yeah, the SLE, all the they've all ways. they've all actually been rediverted to to avoid. In, in fact, uh, one of the more contentious flashpoints of recent history, Bukit Brown. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the reasons why Bukit Brown 
the highway was diverted through the cemetery and not the, it's because it was to avoid the nature reserve mm. actually I seem to remember right there being a story of one of like our largest mangrove areas being earmarked as a nature reserve by the British when they were here and you just feel free to jump in anytime when if, it, if, if this jogs your memory and then like uh, when the PAP government took power they just like s- systematically undid the parliamentary edicts and like uh, declassified it as a nature reserve and then built Are you serious? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is something that I was gonna. Th- it's, this it's, is the caveat, yeah. right? It, that okay. It's, we we now think that our nature reserve should be inviolate. That you know nothing should ever yeah. change the status. But that's really about the government of the day, right? But yeah. historically, we have degazetted exactly. nature reserves. Yeah. Changi was mm, a nature oh, reserve, yeah. right? If you go to Netheravon Road where mm. the you know the ghost bungalows are and the fairy point bungalows are, Correct. you will still see a vestige of the old forest that the really tall trees. Oh, the trees they are beautiful the you yeah, I need to go and see you will love them we'll take go a walk you can okay. hike there right? yeah, we'll take you a know, walk. it's such a beautiful place and that you know, that is the, the last remaining fragment of the primary forest that used to be there now that mangrove we're talking about I believe is pandan mangrove that's it yeah. Right. So where currently Pandan Reservoir sits, mm. with all the industrial areas around it, that whole place used to be swamp. In fact, there is in fact a very small remnant of that mangrove left. Uh, it's heavily mosquito infested. It's mm. in the I think the 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 the, the northeastern corner of Pandan Reservoir, and uh, you can still go in, but there's really nothing much to see. Right. We do have small little patches of mangrove swamp here and there that really does show sort of the historical extent of mangrove swamps in Singapore. Mm. So coming back to my original point, Mm. our history of, you know, treating nature reserves has been a rather spotty one. Mm. So there is a a precedent of the government of the day going, you know what, maybe this nature reserve not so important. Yeah. Then we turn it into industrial industrial park. Exactly. That's very frightening. Actually, this is a very good segue to what I want to talk about earlier, which is, I mean, I think what we're talking about is in a kind of weird way a legacy of empire because like a lot of the development work that we engage in now is really I mean it's not it's it's kind of like inherited from the energy of empire right mm-hmm. they were the first people to in so called terraform this island they came in drain swamps uh, you know they were the first people to reclaim land uh, and then you know all of these deve- all the development that's followed sweet it's a different set of governments but it's really part of that legacy right the colonial uh, project the colonial project, project which we in a weird way have inherited have la. inherited and carry out not we don't call it empire now but like nation building uh, you know like I'm, I'm personally <laughs> in my own work as I'm writing a play now about land reclamation I'm fascinated by how uh, our land reclamation efforts which are so destructive and corrosive right actually impact like coastal ecologies in poorer parts of Southeast Asia where we get sand illegally. So we're literally tearing down like, uh, you know, riverbanks in Cambodia to get sand in very dodgy possibly illegal Are we doing that? Yes. I mean, you brought up the idea of greenwashing earlier. So yeah. a lot of the sustainable things Correct. that we're doing right now oh. masks over how our, you know, what we're doing impacts the ecologies of other countries. Other so yeah. Sand, yeah. sand mining uh, in, in, in parts of Indochina, in Cambodia, in Vietnam mm. is one issue. The other one, this is a, something that a friend uh, talked about in her master's research, was vegetables. Oh, Where do our vegetables, where do our strawberries come from? Strawberries Cameron are Island. Island. You're absolutely right. It's Cameron yeah, Island. And the problem is, what is our consumption? What is our demand for temperate vegetables like strawberries uh, doing to the Cameron Highlands? Correct. If you go to the Cameron Highlands, I mean, this is this is capitalist problem. Right. right? Yeah. You'll see valleys covered in trash because these are the Jeez. byproducts of the vegetable farming process, mm. right? So, so you know, I think we need to be aware personally of our supply chains and how this affects yeah. uh, the broader systems. Yeah, is that thing. Where 
where like increasingly as we start having conversations about you know the environment and our impact on it it's this idea that every little thing you do triggers a chain reaction somewhere, somewhere else, else yeah right? um, this reminds me of what James Scott talks about in his book Seeing Like a State so James seeing Scott like a state. Seeing Like a State so okay. James Scott is a very famous uh, agrarian studies professor at Yale and he wrote this book that I've read uh, four or five or six I read. I, I try to read it once a year because it's such a powerful book okay. wow. it's called Seeing Like a State and he describes how states as bureaucracies view chaos view untamed nature as mm. inimical to mm. the state project mm. I mean to to, a, to an extent this comes out of colonialism mm. but modern states are built in this image yeah. and so he talks a lot about how for example Saddam Hussein viewed the Marsh Arabs as rebels mm. because these Marsh Arabs lived in places that could not be tamed by mm. the state they couldn't build roads into it you had to go in by boat right how ideas how roads for example are a form of state imposed regularization of nature mm. surnames uh, the, 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 the best analogy that he gives is that if you so we count time in terms of seconds and minutes and mm. you know objective units that can be transferred from one place to another but if you go to a vill- remote village in the mountains of Thailand and you say how long will it take to get from point A to point B they'll tell you oh in, in two nights mm. or two moons right mm. rather than oh four hours drive by this road Right, because the way in which we view the natural world comes out of our experience of the world as well. Yeah. And it comes out of the structures in place. Yeah, it's so it's really just about how like human consciousness and ideology as we understand it in the modern era has been so intrinsically shaped and I think distorted by years of colonial conquest. In not just like the live environment, but also the spiritual and the psychological, mm. that it's affected our way, the way we deal with chaos and disorder and amorphous things. Correct. Right. So you know, a a like going back to what we talked about, you know, places like Bidadari, which is mm. uh, a forest that sprang up spontaneously to a central planet. It's like, oh, wow, very itchy. I must <laughs> must do something about this. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. unregulated, unregulated. You know, you know, and then and that 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 is something that we should try. It's an impulse we should try to fight. I think. Yeah, to it's some so extent. ingrained in us, but it's very difficult to decolonialize our thought about this as well. Uh, no, nobody thinks of this as decolonizing, uh, colonizing to begin with. But that's exactly what it is, Christian. Mm. Yeah, it's to decolonize, decolonize the impulse. Yeah, decolonize. To, to, to manage to manage right right and so you know as an educator how do you think we can go about this you know for me it's starting with nature first in our education we as, as david pointed out at the very start we don't start with nature first and the nature that we start with is not our own you know it, it's, it's not something that that, that it surrounds us really it's nature that, that is very western it's so, mediated yeah, it's nature. mediated in a way so if we can start with our own nature with our nature first if, if i can use that phrase then we have a better appreciation of what is around us and we might want to keep it Mm. You know, we might want, we, and then we treasure it a bit more. As we walk around, we can actually name the trees. Mm. We know the flowers that surround us. We know the grass, and we know the insects. We know the bees. We know everything. And if we have a relationship formed with that, then maybe we will treasure it a bit mm. more. I mean, this is the thing that I try to do. In, in prior to leaving for the US, and I was looking at my CV. I've done a ridiculous number of talks in schools, mm. and you know, you go to schools and you you 
talk to kids at the assembly. You know, sometimes they sometimes they drop off into sleep. But you know, there are some audiences where you know once you've captured their imagination, mm. it it sticks. Um, in fact, one of the most interesting talks I ever gave was at Tanjung Katong Girls School, mm. right? And I had no prior experience. I'm an honorary <laughs> alumna, alumna <laughs> of TKGS, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> okay, so so the funny thing was, you know, I was expecting them to be blank slates. I was go, expecting to go in, talk about nature. They go, ooh, ah, okay, I'm done. I'm done my job. Yeah. But when I brought up the pang, you know, when I when I showed a slide of a pangolin, all uh. of a sudden there was, you know, there was chatter going on from some parts of the of, of the hall. And I was very puzzled by this. So I asked the teacher, you know, after the whole thing, what was going on? I said, oh, these kids have actually uh, volunteered with a pangolin conservation organization mm. oh, before. Fantastic. So they actually know. So, you know, th- there is that, that, that the thing about familiarity. Uh, one of the schools that I found very inspiring, Commonwealth Secondary School, um, is is a I mean I I was invited there to to pick up a dead bird mm. <laughs> uh, that, as you do as, as one would right so one of the <laughs> teachers there the biology teacher there he is you know f- and, and this is the problem a lot of this comes down to individual teachers absolutely right? so the biology right. teacher there he's you know he's he's a really amazing guy and he turned part of the school into a rainforest he <gasps> literally said we're gonna dig up this plot of land that was previously grass and we're gonna plant trees here we're gonna turn it into a wetland forest that's and so inspiring literally they did that to the point where they found monitor lizards inside the school compound and to be fair they, they are just beside Pandan Reservoir but you know for a monitor to come into the school compound and just set up shop inside the, in, that, inside means, the that means he's done good yeah. he's done it, good I yeah. mean I've been there I've seen that that, that little rainforest and it is stunning how it is, big is it? it's not very big but it's well done wow right and you know and, and, and this this idea of you know contact with nature it's not something that we even really need to put in that much effort into mm. it, you know I mean it is literally at our doorstep Park Series Park yeah it is literally at our doorstep we just Plow need to take the effort to take our kids out. So I, I have this I have the story that I was telling I was telling Joel about this that when we went to Ubin and Chik Jawa. The reason why I think I like biology so much is because when I was in secondary three, my teacher and, and this was a time where, where they thought they were going to redevelop uh Chik Jawa. So my biology teacher was like, Oh my god, oh my god, we all have to go. You know, so, <laughs> Last chance yeah, to so see. sign consent form, sign consent form, let's go. So uh and this was a time without the boardwalks you know, we could actually travel down. Right, yeah. We could travel down. And so we actually walked down, which now I think is a really bad idea. Oh my god, it's dangerous as hell, yeah. yes. So we we walk down, we would play with like the sand dollars and she would point out certain things, she would talk about the ecology and I was right there in walking on Chik Jawa and it was, I remember it very, very fondly and this is exactly what we need to do with our kids. So, you know, I was thinking about this from a more practical perspective. Where can we put natural history? Where can we put natural heritage? into the syllabus. You know, I've spoken to biology teachers who say, I have the biology syllabus so full already. Uh, mm. Year one must do uh, uh, anatomy. La, then year two must do this. La, can then I just pause here to compliment every time you go into a civil yeah. servant voice? You know what? You yeah. know what? We, we, got, we, we thought we had one guest, but actually we, like, we got, got seven. seven uh, we got like, six in my head. Including, including like, I, think I think it's a possession. <laughs> Very scary. Seven months. Uh, not I seven months. Like yeah. <laughs> So, so you know, and and what I think is this: the social studies curriculum needs to be revised. Take out uh, all that you know that that chaff yeah. and put in natural. Like, heritage. Don't talk about Northern Ireland. Right. Right. You know natural. what, David? That's actually a really, good, a really idea. good idea. To to come at it from a social studies perspective is really really good. It's nation it, building, exactly. Because yeah. there's this whole aspect of nation building in there, and but I think it will be a really hard sell because of where we are at now with our relationship with nature. We, yeah. don't, we don't really prioritize Or it. more importantly, where we are now in our relationship with our society and our state, it's mm. the, like nature is a very, I'm not even going to secondary, like tertiary concern, right? Yeah. It's like it's only a thing that the PM is talking about because of the global environmental crisis. And like, you know, it's how much of that is really nature and how much of it is really like we need to keep 
we need to survive somehow. But from right. a more optimistic, op- optimistic perspective, we should seize on this moment of national anxiety over climate change mm. to you know try and do something better. So you know this is something that we could we should really think about. I and mean, people are much more concerned about nature now. We see a lot of people you know taking photos of cute otters yeah. and, and maybe the urban experience of this city has finally taken its toll we've lived with like this mall landscape cookie cutter for, malls it's yeah, all we've lived Uniqlo with, yeah, this urban landscape NTUC, has, yeah. we've been exactly. living with it for like you know a generation for our whole fucking lives yeah I think it's re- it, it will come to it, a point this is more fatigue yeah. and now we yeah. are retur- return- we are returning to nature yeah returning right? open inverted commas to nature so you know it goes from just building awareness of you know having awareness of nature is one thing everyone knows that Aya, Singapore got some jungle here some jungle mm, there lah, huh? right. Aya, mostly very messy very mosquito huh? right <laughs> awareness does Again. not necessarily mean empathy and yeah, so we need to true. start thinking sure. about building empathy. Uh, because this awareness, oh my God. this awareness needs to be done very deliberately. So which is why all the teachers that we talk about, right, they do it very successfully. We remember them because it's such an impactful thing. Yeah. No, I was remember talking to like my friend Robert about the authors, right? The author watch. Author watch, as they call themselves, right? I don't like, know what they like, call it. Let's like, think about author watch. Like who watch. Huh? Yeah, they really follow these authors like some fucking K-drama. That, you they, know? Really like, they, they anthropomorphize <laughs> them, they humanize them, they personify them. And, and you know what? Like, so this is going to the point about like how awareness doesn't mean necessarily having the the best set attitudes towards nature because like it becomes like, we need to cull that family because they keep attacking the Amokyo one. The to be fair, right, I right, think right, the author watch yeah. people, I, I know the author watch people. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> Are we treading on I, dangerous I, I ground? I think no. I think there is there is some uh, uh, some critique to be had there, but also <laughs> also I think they're doing fairly good work because yeah, they are keeping think. track of the author's mm. movements. They are trying to diffuse problems as and when they occur. Like for example, ah, uh, the author come to my koi pond. Correct, Sorry, correct. The author has been coming to my koi pond, yeah, eating a, my very expensive uh, ornamental fish. Much better character Thank study you. there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry, I've been workshopping this for many well years. Well done, well done. Thank you. Oh, no, shout out to Miss Nancy. <laughs> Uh, David, by the way, used to be a student of Pooja Nancy at Temasek Junior College when she was the teacher in charge of the drama club. (laughs) And of course, if you can't tell, David was a budding thespian in his school days. (laughs) Actually, I want to cycle back to something you were talking about earlier, which is bird Twitter. Uh, first of all, I didn't know there was a bird Twitter, and now that I do, uh, I'm very intrigued to hear about some of the controversies you were alluding to. One of the positive outcomes of the whole Black Lives Matter movement has been this idea of looking at the legacy of Confederacy in the United States. Ah, yes. Right? And uh, what uh, people have been... Oh, this has been debated for a long, long time, but finally now there is an opportunity to do something about it. Um, it's that why are you know if you look at the bird names the names we use for birds around the world right some uh, a colleague of mine uh, i think martin stervander who's a who's a uh, academic i think somewhere in europe right now he compiled a list of all the known bird names and he took out all the ones with honorific names meaning names that contain a name birds are named after somebody for example yeah. uh, mccown's longspur Fair. named after mccown right ah. or raffles's malcoha who's named after Raffles, Sir Stanford Raffles, right. right? And if you look at this whole list, right, I think of the 200 to 500 odd people who have been honoured with a bird's name or honoured with a, with a bird named after them, four are named after Asian people. 
Matsudaira Storm Petrol, I was Salim Ali Swiftlet, uh, and two more Japanese names, I think. Oh, of course they're Japanese. Ijima's Leaf Warbler and one more. Hmm. Um, now, and, 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 and that's the thing, right? It also sh- a former Imperial Power as well. <laughs> point out, yeah. mm. right? And so this, you know, I mean, on, on, on the broadest global scale, this highlights the imbalance mm. of you know, how colonial knowledge has shaped our knowledge of the natural world. And, in the, U- and in the US, the McCown's Long Spur has become a bit of a flashpoint because McCown was a Confederate general. <gasps> he owned slaves. He advocated for the ownership of slaves. Oh he did later recant like, his these position. These birds are so innocent. Don't saddle them with your white right. supremacy. So I think, yeah. and, and <laughs> to, to be fair, this is a conversation that I think can only really happen in America because they have a central committee that controls uh, the names of, that, that decides the names of birds. So they, can they change it? So and this has they have been debating the cha- name cha- uh, changing the name of the Macau's Long Spur for a long, long Actually, time. I, I mean, I wonder if there is a Singapore offshoot to this because if you think about like the earliest inhabitants of not just this island but this region right yeah. will not some of the earliest knowledge of the natural world here be phrased in languages like Malay uh-huh. yeah. you know for us what we know as the zebra dove today used to be known as the merbok mm. right the red biscuit bubble is the jambol right mm. the oriental white eye the swinhose white eye the matapute right our vernacular names for these birds have changed over time they're not static sure. and is there even a place for naming birds after people never mind whether it's white people or non-white or people. Like people the whole general. idea that people are complicated actually yeah. one major conversational strand that's emerged from climate change is actually colonialism which is so central to the conversation and how it supplanted indigenous knowledges that were so intimately tied to the natural world and who knew how to interact with the with, with natural world in a sustainable I mean you look at the fire yes. regimes of Australia Correct. how you know the, the stopping these controlled burns mm. leads to much larger annual fires you yeah. know if you could you could have a series of small fires that you know help to burn back some of the debris that have accumulated exactly if you don't do that you're going to have these massive wildfires yeah, that like, scour like the hell, landscape you know, right yeah. I mean I don't know it's just when I think about like colonialism in the natural world and how it relates to Singapore I will never forget going to Kew Gardens in the UK which is like just on the outskirts of central London I mean of London right it's basically the Royal Botanical Garden and in there they have these massive glass houses right where they uh, have different kinds of like uh uh, forest climates so there's yeah. a rainforest one okay which uh, I believe dates back to when like you know the Brits were going around conquering large swaths of this like part of the world Darwin Southeast Asia Wallace. and you know were collecting samples uh, and wanted to recreate um, the, the oriental, tropi- the oriental tropical landscape in queue oriental. as a way to say to showcase colonial acquisition so um, the botanical garden as an institution is a deeply colonial one. Very much it, so. Yeah, it's all about uh, exp- uh, displaying colonial wares. It's another. Mu- uh, it's another British museum. Yeah, the British museum is. You the know, whole idea of natural history is predicated on colonial uh, conquest. Yeah, yeah. Right? because you know the idea that you could acquire a place f- completely through an acquisition of all the knowledge that and that displaying place has to, these yeah. curiosities curiosities mm. of course framing it as being something other to an audience that would be naturally unfamiliar with these with these ideas yeah. um, but you know uh, rather ironically the Gardens by the Bay right now we have air conditioned and refrigerated greenhouses yes. that showcase it's, the diversity of the rest really of the world it's a, no it's a very perverse inversion because <laughs> like I feel like Singapore we don't talk about this enough but Singapore behaves in a very strange neo-imperial neo-colonial 
colonial way in this because part of the world. Because there's gold standard yeah. to us, what? So we Correct. must aspire to these things. <laughs> Correct. It's like, yeah, not only are we going to like, inherit all of these like fucked up beliefs about the economy and industry, we're also going to inherit this need to display otherness <laughs> yeah you know display you know uh, our really yeah promise, display right. our knowledge <laughs> of the rest of the world it's it's so it's so we're bizarre. a cosmopolitan city yeah <laughs> i will never forget this so there's a beautiful documentary that was made about um land reclamation and the the, the, the deleterious effects it's having on myanmar uh and then there was an artist and activist from 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 a burmese uh activist and uh, artists who came to Singapore as part of this documentary to talk about where all the sand from her riverbank might be going and she arrives at Gardens by the Bay mm-hmm. and she's mm-hmm. touching these plants and she's like interacting with them in this in this almost ritualistic way and then she goes to the, the sand bank and goes oh this sand is from my country was it funny or moving no it was very moving okay. it was very <laughs> very it powerful it sounds like it's moving yeah. yeah and in these moments I can't help but feel that we have become this imperial power in this part of the world and we behave like our old imperial masters yeah. in ways that we don't even I mean, we've realize. never had, really had a reckoning with, with imperialism. No, we, we had such a... In no, a it way, was a very smooth transition. A, I mean, compared to Absolutely. other post-colonial mm. uh, uh, societies, very smooth. And we've right? also never really talked about this formally in school, no. about, you know, the, the legacy of imperialism and also our struggle with colonialism as mm. well. And that's, you know, like Operation Cold Store and all that. So... Yeah, and because you said that now, we are going to get pulled off the air. <laughs> Correct. Uh, uh, thanks, this uh, is Puff my office. Thanks, uh, uh, hello. Yeah. Oh, great. There's another voice to end <laughs> off. Thank you very much. The podcast. Sorry, the voices in my head struggle to emerge. So we're just here listening to David do his thing. And all I can think about is... Oh my god, I want to hear more. It's yeah. incredible. Unfortunately, this walk does have to come to an end. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We have to let everybody get on with the rest of their lives, you know. It's true. Uh, but before we go, let's thank David. Thanks, David. Mm. Thank you very much, I David. I got a lot of spare time. <laughs> yeah. No lies, because all you do is look at birds. Right? Yeah, correct. <laughs> anyway, David, you should seriously, right, consider uh, doing a popular science podcast. Oh my god, that's such a good idea. Right? I fully support. Yeah. You? You, you, the only thing that you need, as we said before, is a good co-host exactly a yeah. good co-host so right if anybody's listening within the reach of our voice right and yeah. you're very impressed with David and would like to join him on a please podcast apply. Yeah, please apply please you apply know? Yeah, yeah, we'll haul you out like David just email email david at bubbabird at gmail.com <laughs> yeah. or you know don't reach out to our uh, gmail because we also don't know why it is <laughs> <laughs> well, okay I hope you've enjoyed your walk in nature with us today oh I feel refreshed until next time this has been Joel this is Kishan and I'm David bye bye everyone bye.